Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Friends, good morning. We come to the end of the liturgical year with today's solemnity, the solemnity of Christ, the King of the universe. And the readings that the church gives us to contemplate today are extraordinary. And we are meant, we're meant to notice how odd they are. We're meant to notice and feel, I would say, some intense juxtaposition between the beginning of the liturgy of the word, namely the first reading, the psalm, the second reading, and then the gospel. The gospel is this like great record scratch that we're meant to be drawn into and notice. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. That the first reading we have from the book of 2 Samuel, we have the the anointing of David as king of Israel, right? David who's the prototypical king of the Old Testament. David who is the one who slayed Goliath. David who was the shepherd, the one who God anointed, right? David who is the Christos, the anointed one, the Mashiach in Hebrew. He is the anointed king of Israel, the bridegroom king of Israel. Do you hear Israel's response to him? We are your bone of your, we are bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. It's an allusion to Genesis. It's an allusion to what Adam says when he wakes up and sees Eve. These are nuptial words. These are spousal words. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. David, who's the bridegroom king, and Jesus is the new David. The new Christos, the definitive Christos, he's the definitive bridegroom. He's greater than David, and he's the heir to the promise. That's the first reading. The second, the the responsorial psalm that we had today from Psalm 122, it's one of the psalms of ascent. So in ancient Israel, when when pilgrims would be making their way into Jerusalem, they'd be ascending the mountain up to the city. They'd be chanting this psalm, Psalm 122, and the priests, they'd be saying the same thing as they would go up the steps into the temple to offer sacrifice. These psalms of ascent, these were psalms of hope, a psalm of longing, a psalm of one day the Lord will gather together all of the lost and scattered tribes of Israel and will reconvene them. He will bring them back together and his anointed one, the king, will rule and reign from his throne. So this is a psalm, a deep longing in the heart of Israel for the king, for the king. And then the second reading, Paul's letter to the Colossians, it's this soaring, beautiful, high Christology, this look of Jesus, the word as this cosmic figure, right? He's the visible image of the invisible father. All things came to be through him. And we also hear that by him, by means of him, we have been rescued. And we've been transferred from the dominion of darkness into the dominion, the kingdom of our God and Father, the kingdom of light, that he fought the ancient foe and threw him down, right? And then we come to the gospel. And you might think that the church would have given us today one of those spectacular second coming of Christ readings from the gospel, right? Jesus riding on the clouds, coming in glory and majesty, surrounded by the ranks of angels. Or maybe Matthew 25, the separation of the sheep and goats, the judgment of the nations. When the king comes, he will sit on his throne and he will divide them as a shepherd, the sheep from the goats. One might think, right, that that would be what we hear, but that's not what we hear. Instead, we come to Golgotha. We come to the darkest moment in the history of the universe when humanity collectively was guilty of theocide when we killed God 
We don't see him arrayed in majesty and glory. We, we, see, him, we see him hanging on to life by a thread. We see him pinned to the cross like a specimen. We see him writhing in agony. We see him in so much pain. We see him ridiculed and spit upon and mocked. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. We see him in suffocating. We see him in shock. We see him bleeding out. His body covered in lacerations from head to foot. We see his head crowned in thorns. And by the way, when we think of thorns or the artistry that we have in the West, we think of like those little like thorn bushes, right? Like the thorns on a rose bush. That's not the thorns of ancient Palestine, of first century Judaism. The thorns, there was this bush that grew in Jerusalem that had these thorns that were like steel spikes. They were like an inch, an inch and a half long. And the people who've studied the Shroud of Turin, they do all these pollen examinations. They notice that the pollen that's surrounding the fossilized pollen that surrounds the, the figure's head is from that plant with those excruciating thorns. It was like a shrub was pressed into his skull. Unimaginable pain. And above his head, the inscription written by Pilate intended to mock him. Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judeorum, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. We're meant to look and we're meant to feel what the Romans intended, which is some king. Like this is not, that's not what kings look like. This is not what happens to kings. This is not how their stories go. Like there's, there's nothing about this scene in a worldly sense we might say. There's nothing about this scene that, that even remotely feels kingly or powerful or regal or majestic or stately. This is state-sponsored terrorism. This is how the Romans controlled the population. This is the death of a nobody. This is not what kings look like. But then again, nothing about his life was as expected as we might have expected. Like When the Magi, go back to the beginning, when the Magi come to Jerusalem... Those astrologers, those pagan astrologers from Persia, when they come to Jerusalem, they come to the capital city. They come to the palace. They come to Herod. They say, we've seen his star at its rising. We've come to pay homage to the newborn king. Where is he? Expecting him to be there. This is where kings are. In the palace, in the capital, in the seat of power. That's not where he was. And they're redirected, right? They're redirected. According to the ancient prophecy, he's meant to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, the house of bread. And that's where they go. And when they enter, what a strange scene they meet. They don't find a monarch, a regal monarch, sitting upon a throne with scepter in hand, surrounded by attendants and all sorts of finery. No, they find a baby. In a cold night, swallowed in rags, A newborn babe lying in a manger, not what they were anticipating. It's not what anybody was anticipating. Like, where are the sentry guards? Where are the attendants? Where are the nobles? Where are the midwives? Where where are the cushions and the silk blankets? Where's the gold? 
I picture, as I was praying with this gospel, as I was praying, drawn into the scene, I picture his mother, I picture the blessed mother holding him that night, that cold Bethlehem night, that night where nothing went as expected. And I picture her laying his little body down on the manger, low to the ground, in the feeding trough, and I see her laying down next to him, and she's holding and stroking his hand. And I hear her whisper with a smile on her face. I hear her say, well, little king, I suppose wherever you lay your head, you'll make it a throne. I wonder if those words came back to her that day that we call Good Friday. She heard the crowd sneering at him as she felt the Romans intensifying their brutality and she watched the thief to his left look at him and curse him. If you are the Christ, save yourself. She's thinking that's not why he came. I wonder if Gabriel's words came back to her as she was staying there at Golgotha. Remember at the Annunciation, Gabriel comes to her and says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins and he will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will rule over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. I will give him the throne of his father, David. I see her looking at him and saying, is this the throne? Like, my son, how could this be your throne? And I see Mary, I hear, I hear the words of Psalm 22 coming to her lips before Jesus begins to pray them. He says, I hear her saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken him? None of this makes sense. How is this the fulfillment of the promises? Did I misunderstand? I picture her mind flashing through all the stories of the Old Testament. I hear her going to Abraham, the story of Abraham and Isaac, that horrific story in Genesis where God says to Abraham, take your son, your only begotten son, and take him to a mountain that I will point out to you, and there offer him as a holocaust to me. Isaac, who carried the wood of the sacrifice up the mountain on his own back, this very mountain, Mount Moriah, becomes Mount Zion in the New Testament. And I see her looking up to heaven, looking up to the clouds, and her heart is wrenching open, crying out, send down your angel, Lord. Like, stop this madness. Will you not spare your son as you spared Isaac? And the minutes go by, and they feel like hours, and every time... He has to take a breath. He has to lift himself up off of his feet. And pain just shoots through his body again. And every breath, she holds her breath. Because she's suffering an invisible agony. The passion that he felt in his body, she was experiencing in her heart. And then her mind goes back to the temple. When all those years ago, when she and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple, and Simeon said to her, As for thine own soul, a sword shall pierce it. I see her eyes scanning his whole body. 
his mangled corpus, those pierced feet that she used to tickle as a young mom, the hands now pierced and deformed from the nails that she used to kiss, the head that she used to bathe, covered in blood and spit, and his mouth just agape, open, in agony and pain that used to nurse at her breast. And I hear her saying again, he will be great. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And wherever you lay your head, little king, you make it a throne. And she sees Dismas, the good thief, right to the right. She sees Dismas like lurch and turn his body towards the Lord. And she thinks, what is he about to say? Is he also about to curse my son, hurl another javelin into his heart and my heart? And she hears something extraordinary. Jesus, he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What a strange thing for a dying man to say to another dying man. And the tears fill her eyes again. And of his kingdom, there'll be no end. And she hears her son say, amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, he is a strange king. He's the strangest. His throne is a cross, his scepter, their nails in his hands, his royal raiment is his own flesh ripped from his body. His power appears as powerlessness. His strength appears as weakness. His armies invisible. His subjects one to his right. He's nothing that anybody predicted because he's not like anybody who ever lived. Because he came for this moment. This wasn't the unfortunate conclusion to his life that was so full of promise and cut short at the prime. This was why he came. This was the reason that the shadow, the long shadow of the cross was cast backwards over his entire life, beginning at the beginning. That the wood of the manger, as a seed, turns into the tree of the cross. From the beginning, there was wood pressing into his body because he came in order to offer himself as a ransom for many. Who does this? What king does this? Who puts on the weapons of vulnerability and powerlessness to come fight on behalf of your own rebel race. It would have been more than enough for him to have just sent us a few extra angels to assist us in our battle. That would have been more than generous. More than enough. But he robes himself in human flesh. The king comes down to fight on our behalf. We who were rebels against him. On that cross, he's reigning. 
Because on that cross, he's waging war against the ancient foe, death and hell and Satan. He's drawing the enemy close so that from within inside the belly of death, he could explode it from the inside out. He who is life willingly put himself on the mousetrap to be eaten. He put himself on the hook to be swallowed by the great fish so that inside its belly, he could destroy it. On that cross, he's atoning for your sin and for my sin and every sin of everybody who's ever lived. He's like Samson in the temple, situated between the great columns of the universe, and he's pulling down the whole thing upon himself to absorb it into himself and to swallow it all in an even greater act of mercy. On that cross, the king is revealing the madness of God's love. Who among you, having a hundred sheep and losing one, would leave the 99 to go in search of the one? Nobody does this. No king does this. This is the madness of his love. This is the madness of his passion. This is the madness of our God because on that cross, he's revealing God's heart. He's saying, to our hearts, our hearts that are fearful and sinful, our hearts that suspect that God is a tyrant, that he's a taker, that he's stingy, that he's a killjoy, that he's a manipulator, he's telling us, no, that is not who I am. I am love incarnate. I am life incarnate. I am joy incarnate. I am beauty incarnate. He's saying, from the cross, I know that you fear me. So I will come to you not in bigness and power. I'll come to you in littleness and weakness. I know that you think I'm going to take life from you, that somehow I will compromise your life. So I will let you take me, seize me, blindfold me, spit upon me, scourge me, nail me to a cross, kill me. I know, he says, I know that you're afraid that my kingship will bury your freedom. So I'll let you bury me. He's a strange king. This is a strange feast. But this is our king. He's the king of hearts. He's the king of the universe. He's the king of crumbs and forgotten things and forgotten ones. He's the king of lost sheep. He's the king of the poor. He's the king of the rich. He's the king of hypocrites, the king of saints, the king of sinners the king of things visible, the king of things invisible. From every blade of grass to every bird and tree and bug and flower, he looks at everything in the universe and says, mine. He's the king that your heart, the throne of your heart, has been waiting for all along. But he will not force himself there. The God who looks at every atom in the universe and says, mine, pauses before your heart and says, I'll only come if you invite me. Lord Jesus, may we depose the egos that sit upon the thrones of our own hearts to allow you to sit there and to reign there. And Mary, 
You who are the queen, pray for us that we will let your son reign in our hearts and reign in our world as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace. Lord is with you. 